sermon this morning is I'm going to span over, I'm going to guide you through some specific text in this final 24 hours of Jesus' life, leading up to the death and then eventually the resurrection, as we've already heard read from Elliot this morning, that resurrection story. So turn in your Bibles there. This day is kind of bittersweet for me because I have thoroughly enjoyed studying week after week through the gospel of Mark. It's been a great joy in my life, and it's also been a great challenge. Earlier this week, I put some commentaries back on the shelf that had been with me in my backpack or in my car since September. So we wrap up our study on the gospel of Mark today, and as you see that video, it gives you a glimpse into maybe what the mindset of Peter would have been like as he is running away when Jesus is crucified. I was at a critical point in my life a few years ago, had some big decisions to make, so I was seeking advice from people that I admired, some mentors in my life, and I was asking them, what should I do? And I remember one guy asked me this question. He said, are you running from something or are you running towards something? Are you running from something out of fear or are you running towards something that God may be calling you to? Are you running from fear? A basic definition of fear, I would say a dictionary definition, but really in this day and age, it's just a Google definition of fear, is an unpleasant feeling triggered by the perception of danger, whether it's real or imagined. When we are threatened by some sort of danger, we have an unpleasant feeling, and you know the response that our brains give us, it's either fight, flight, or freeze. And when we experience fear, Our bodies have a reaction. There's these quick energy hormones like adrenaline are released into our bloodstream and into our muscles. And that's when when you have fear, your heart beats faster, your muscles tighten up, your eyes widen. Some scholars, or not scholars, but scientists say that your reproductive and your digestive system shut down temporarily and you just have this bodily reaction to fear. I'll admit there's a little bit of fear and nervousness before I preach, and so I start experiencing that feeling of fear in my stomach on Saturday afternoons all the way up until Sunday afternoon. How many of you have ever experienced fear before? Anybody? For those of you who did not raise your hand, you either don't believe in raising your hand in church, or you're not telling the truth. (laughs) Because as human beings, that's how we're wired. That's how God created us. Everybody experiences fear. Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. As I guide you through some texts in Mark 14, 15, and 16 this morning, we're going to look at a few characters, and one of the things that you'll notice is that each character experiences fear, and that includes Jesus. Jesus himself experiences fear. Fear is not a sin. Like I said, that's how God created us. It's how we respond to fear and the habits that are created and the way that we live that becomes a sin out of response to fear. So there's a difference in how these characters in the Gospel of Mark respond to fear. And I want to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we looked at the Passover meal in Mark 14, which is now known as the Lord's Supper. And then after that's over, they leave, they go to the Mount of Olives. And then on Mark 14 and verse 27... Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters 
He is predicting that when everything goes down, they're going to desert him. And then he quotes from the prophet Zechariah, and he says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Obviously, Jesus is the shepherd in this text, and uh, the sheep are the disciples. So when the shepherd is struck down, when he's crucified, when he's beaten, when he's arrested, the sheep, the disciples will scatter. Why? Will they scatter? Why will they desert Jesus? Because of fear. The disciples in this story are about to experience massive amounts of fear, massive amounts of adrenaline being pumped into their bloodstream, a feeling that they did not anticipate, but overwhelmed them because right here in Mark 14, they're making bold claims. Peter makes some bold claims. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. But then when push comes to shove, they scatter, and Jesus predicts it. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, after I am raised up. Did you catch that? He says, after I am raised up. He's been talking about and predicting his death and how it won't end in death, but he will rise again. He's been predicting that all along the way in Mark, and they still don't get it. And he says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He says, after I'm risen, after I've raised up. They just don't have the ears to hear it yet. Something that Jesus has said over and over in Mark, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples just don't have the ears to hear that. But he predicts it. And then later that'll come true, that he's going to go ahead of them to Galilee. But because of their fear, I think, because of their fear of what's going to happen in these cryptic statements that Jesus has been making, I think their fear prevents them from truly hearing what Jesus is saying here. What causes fear in your life? We have a lot of fears and phobias. And we're not all the same, according to each person. But I'm constantly amazed at the amount of people who have a fear of clowns. Does anybody have a fear of clowns? See, I knew there would be a, a good showing there. What about snakes? Anybody have a fear of snakes? Yeah, that's maybe increased. Fear of snakes and insects and scorpions, and for some reason people are afraid of clowns. What about public speaking? Anybody afraid of public speaking? I mean, you do your research, and death and public speaking are the top two fears, which I'm doing right now. I'm, it's public speaking, not dying, hopefully. But fear of heights fear of flying. There's all sorts of phobias and fears. And for years, I have had a fear of muscle cramps. And there's a reason why. My senior year of high school, football practice one day, it was a hot, humid August day. Uh, as a punishment, our coach took away the water, which he should have been arrested for that. But for whatever reason, <laughs> it was an old school approach. And I got these cramps in my calf muscles towards the end of practice. And I still had to run sprints at the end, so I was running like bow-legged because I, I couldn't move. My calf muscles were cramped up and balled up. And I, after practice was over, I got dressed, and I got in my truck, and I had this little red Nissan stick shift truck. And as I'm driving home, my quads cramped up, and then my hamstrings. So I'm driving home trying to shift gears with cramps all in my legs, and I'm praying that God will just get me home safely. I pulled into the driveway of my parents' house, which was my house. I fell out of the car, and I crawled inside in dramatic fashion. But I was hurting. 
And I went to the kitchen table and I started drinking Gatorades. I started drinking water and eating bananas and doing whatever I could to make these cramps go away because I was severely dehydrated. And I thought at that point it was over. And then all of a sudden, the cramps came back in my legs. I mean, I'm talking calf muscles, quads, hamstrings, everything. I fell to the kitchen floor, screaming in pain. And as I was screaming, these muscles in my neck started to cramp up. So my chin went down like this. Then my my traps started to cramp up, and my arms and my ribs and whatever abs that I may or may not have, everything was cramping up, and I was in this balled-up position on the kitchen floor, screaming in pain. And my younger brother, I was a senior in high school, my younger brother was in eighth grade at the time, and he leaned over, and I remember I'm screaming, and he said, what do you want me to do? (laughs) And I just shouted out as loud as I could, call 911, like that was my response. I went into what I would call a full body cramp. Uh, It was terrifying. He didn't call 911. He called my great-grandmother. She came over with some potassium pills, and I wound up being okay, but for years, I had a fear of cramps. Anytime I'm playing a sport or doing anything and I feel a twitch or a a bubbly feeling in my calf muscle, I was freaking out. I'm thinking, wait a minute, is it going to happen again? Oh no, not the full body cramp. Like that was my feeling. I told this story in 2003 at Camp Deer Run on a Monday night. um, And I haven't told that story publicly since then. I'm ashamed to say when I use this story When I preached that night, I compared it to Jesus' suffering, or I talked about how my suffering was nothing compared to Jesus' suffering, and uh, shame on me for using that as an example, but now I use it as an example of fear because it really has been a fear in my life. What causes fear? Maybe it's something small and, and seemingly funny like that, but in a serious note, what causes fear? Well, death is the underlying reason and root and cause of most fears. Whether or not you would agree with that, it's true. That there's this thing looming over all of our lives that someday we're going to die, we're going to experience death, and we don't want to because we just don't know what that's like. There's only one person who's gone through death and out the other side, and that's Jesus. So there's a little bit of fear of death, and sometimes that's a good thing. If the fear of death prevents you from doing something harmful, like this lesson about fear is not about overcoming your fears so that you can go bungee jumping or cliff diving or something like that. I'm not telling you to do something reckless. You know, fear can be a good thing, fear of death preventing you from doing something harmful, but the fear of anything rooted in the fear of death can become harmful when it prevents us from trusting our lives into God's hands. That's where fear starts to really become a problem as a disciple of Jesus. When fear becomes an inward condition, when fear works its way into our system and it becomes habitual and The way we base our decisions is based off of fear and not trust in God when fear prevents us from making an impact in the kingdom of God. That's when fear becomes harmful. Uh, I read a book this year called Into the Silent Land, written by a guy named Martin Laird. Great book. He has a chapter on fear that I would highly recommend And Martin Laird defines fear as this. He says, fear is a mass of thoughts 
and feelings and an unpleasant tension in the body. A little bit different than the Google definition, but he goes on to write and to say about this type of fear is that's all it is. Fear is what you're experiencing, and then your mind's commentary on the fear, which sometimes can get out of control, and then feeds that fear. And it's an unpleasant feeling in your body, like the pit of your stomach or whatever it may be. And he says, that's all fear is. If you can name fear for what it is, it actually doesn't sound so bad. He said, but if you want fear to grow and to become a part of your everyday life and to cripple and to paralyze you, then run from it. Whatever it is or whoever it is that causes fear in your life, he said, if you want that fear to really grow, then run from it, avoid it at all costs. And it'll grow. It'll paralyze you. He said, but if you want stability in the midst of fear. Notice he says stability in the midst of fear. He's not saying that all fear will be gone and you can live this reckless, fearless life. No, fear will always be there because fear is a part of the human condition. But if you want stability in the midst of fear, it begins with facing it. And Martin Laird writes that, When you stare fear in the eye, it cannot withstand a direct gaze, a direct look in the eye. And that's what Jesus does with his fear in the garden in Mark 14. He goes off to pray before he's betrayed. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane in verse 32. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John And he began to be distressed and agitated. Look at that in verse 33. Jesus began to be distressed and agitated. It's unique. Because up until this point, as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been in complete control. He's been leading, he's been guiding, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's even clearing out the temple, he's doing all sorts of things, and he is in control, and now all of the sudden... It seems like Jesus isn't in control anymore and he's distressed, he's agitated, he's overwhelmed and Mark gives us a rare glimpse into the inner world of Jesus, into the emotional state of Jesus. And Jesus said to them in verse 34, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And then, as you know, Jesus goes off to pray, comes back, they're sleeping, goes off to pray, comes back, they're sleeping. But they don't fully comprehend what Jesus is actually going through here. And in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us while Jesus was praying, his sweat was like drops of blood because he was so agitated, so distressed. Jesus experienced fear. Jesus himself, God incarnate, experience fear. So if you've ever struggled with fear, maybe you can take some hope in that, that God knows what you feel like because he also experienced it. He experienced that fear. But there's a difference between the way that Jesus experiences fear and the way the disciples experience fear, or at least a difference in how they respond to it. Um, In the last several months, as a preacher, uh, this 
feeling of nervousness or fear of public speaking has reemerged in my life. Just because I do it every week doesn't mean that there's not some fear and nervousness. But I thought it was strange because for a while I didn't feel it, and then all of a sudden it came back. So I was doing a mentoring session with a guy named Jim Martin. He was a longtime preacher, and now he mentors younger preachers. And I told him about this, and I said, is it normal to have preached this many sermons and still feel nervous? And he said, absolutely. That I've, I've known preachers who would get physically sick before they would preach their entire career. And I said, what did they do? And he said, they kept on preaching because that's what God had called them to do. And then he said, that's what good leaders do. They press on, they may move forward even when they're afraid. It doesn't mean the fear is gone, but they keep going even when they experience fear. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He doesn't run from it. He's not so overwhelmed to the point where he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do it. And they have to drag him to the cross. That's not what he does. He's willing to face his fear. That's the difference, is Jesus doesn't run. As he's praying, he's asking for God to remove this cup from him, but then he eventually says, not what I will, but your will be done. So he's pressing forward, and then he gets an immediate answer to his prayer. Judas shows up, and he's ready to betray Jesus with a kiss. And there's a mob there, and it's unnecessary because Jesus wasn't coming for some military violent revolution. You know, we know because of John that Peter's the guy that pulls out a sword and chops somebody's ear off, and there's this little scuffle, but then it all calms down. And once Jesus calms the scuffle down, in verse 50, we're told of chapter 14, and all of them deserted him and fled. All of these men, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Simon, uh, Levi, you know, all the disciples who had been with Jesus did just as he predicted. They deserted him. They ran. When things got really intense, when this all of a sudden became a reality, they're gone. Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message, and I like the way that he words this. He says, all the disciples cut and ran. They got out of there. They took off, and the only one left standing was Jesus. And then we get this in verse 51 and 52. We get a little description, a short story that's not in uh, Matthew or Luke or John. It's only in Mark. There's a certain young man who was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Historically, this guy is known, because he doesn't have a name, as the Gethsemane Streaker. We don't know who he is. We don't know if he's one of the disciples. We don't know. It's just some random guy who's not wearing much. It's late at night. And then in the scuffle, he gets caught. He runs off naked. The Gethsemane Streaker. Who is this guy? And why is he running in fear? Many people speculate and think maybe this was Mark himself. Without naming himself, maybe Mark inserts himself into the story at this point. We don't know. Maybe Mark just identifies with this guy, and that's why he includes this in the story. We know that later on, Mark abandons Paul, so maybe Mark just identifies with this guy. But they all cut and run. They all leave. They all scatter. 
And then in chapter 14, the rest of chapter 14, there's two trials. Jesus is put on trial. But you may not have realized this. Peter is also put on trial. Jesus' trial is a little bit more official. Peter's trial happens over on the side. And Peter's put on trial by a, a young servant girl. And what Mark does with the rest of Mark chapter 14 is he contrasts Jesus and the courage that he had with Peter and how he acted cowardly. Jesus stood and faced the fear with courage, with calmness. He was collected and he moved forward with what he needed to do. Peter was so scared that he was lying, he was crying, he was denying, and he was running away. And then we get to chapter 15. Jesus is handed over to Pilate in verse 1. And then Pilate has Jesus on trial. And then there's this option. There's this guy named Barabbas who is a murderer, an insurrectionist. And then there's Jesus who's innocent. And the crowd wants Barabbas, who's really the guilty one, to be released. And Jesus, the innocent one, to be punished. And then in Mark chapter 15, in verse 15, so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowds. Why? Pilate was the Roman governor. This is Passover time. He's in Jerusalem. His main goal is to somewhat keep the peace and prevent any sort of riots from taking place. That's Pilate's main goal. His reputation is at stake. Word will eventually get back to Caesar. How does he handle this? Well, all this has gone into an uproar, so Pilate wants to satisfy the crowd because of fear. Fear of his own reputation, fear of the crowd. So you see how fear works its way into every character. Jesus is afraid in Gethsemane. The disciples are afraid, so they cut and run. Even the chief priests and the leaders who have been wanting so badly to arrest and kill Jesus, they've been afraid along the way. And now even Pilate fears the crowd and fears what might happen to him, so he releases Jesus to be crucified. And then the rest of Mark 15, we have the most famous execution in the history of the world. Jesus is sentenced to death. He's beaten. He's mocked. Carries his own cross and then has help carrying his cross because he's so weak at that point. He's crucified and then eventually he dies. He breathes his last and gives up his spirit. And then Mark 15 ends with Jesus being buried. The world knows this story. The world could look at a cross and have a pretty good idea that that represents something that Jesus did for us. Did a lesson several months ago called, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? He's been telling his disciples all along that this is going to happen, and it happens exactly how he predicted it. But I will say with complete confidence that I believe that Jesus was not crucified as a coward or as a rebel or like the other two guys who deserved it to his right and to his left. Jesus was crucified with great courage and great bravery. So when you look at the crucifixion, and if you were to slow down and read through this, some of you have this week, one of the questions that might come to mind is, where in the world would Jesus get such courage from? 
You see a man who is so deeply distressed in the garden of Gethsemane praying, and now all of a sudden, he stands firm and he allows himself to die on the cross. Where does he get this courage from? I believe a major part of this courage comes from the fact that he believed that this was not the end. He believed, as he has been telling his disciples, that won't be the end of the story. After I've been raised, after I'm risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. And that gives him the courage to move forward. And then we get to Mark 16. The end of the story for Mark, in most of your Bibles, you may look after verse 8, it says that the earlier manuscripts do not have verse 9 and following. There's a lot of debate that goes into that. It was obviously added on a little bit later. And the best manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we found, end at verse 8. Did Mark intend to end there? We don't know. Was it lost? We don't know. What what is included in verse 9 and following probably is what the early church believed. And so they added that in there. But for the sake of today, we're going to end at verse 8. So I want to read chapter 16, verse 1 through 8. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. The last thing on their minds is they're, they're not expecting Jesus to not be there. They're going to anoint his body for the second burial that would take place about a year later when the bodies decompose and they take the bones and they do the final burial. Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They'd been saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us when we get to the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back, and they're about to get the shock of their lives. Verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. It's kind of strange how Mark words this. If you look at the other gospel accounts, we're told it's an angel. Some say it's two angels. So if this is an angel sitting there in an empty tomb, Jesus' body is gone. Every time in the Bible when somebody comes in contact with an angel, what do they experience? Fear. They're afraid. So this is what they find when they get there. Verse 6, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look. There is a place where they laid him, the shock of their lives. He's not here. He's been raised. You can see this is where he's buried, but his body is gone. And then in verse 7, he says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. There's a word of grace and forgiveness in there. The same disciples, the same Peter who cut and ran, who deserted Jesus, are now being told, go get those same disciples. Go get that same Peter who abandoned Jesus and tell them the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is going to meet them. He's not done with them yet. Their cowardly nature has been forgiven, and God is going to continue to work through them. And then we get this eerie statement, a a strange way to end it in verse 8. So they went out and fled from the tomb, speaking of the women, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. And this is how it ends, for they were afraid. 
They leave the tomb, and they're afraid. There's more fear. There's more characters experiencing fear. But this time, it's a different kind of fear. It's a holy, reverent fear. And as human beings, we just gotta, we need to be patient with them and give them a little bit of time to process what just happened. They leave with a certain type of fear. Fear will always be there because that's a part of the human condition. But because of what we read in Mark chapter 16, fear can now be experienced in a different way. We can face fear in a much different way because of the example that Jesus set for us and the difference that an empty tomb makes. Because Jesus faced death and went all the way through and out through an empty tomb, we now can live with a certain kind of courage like Jesus did. This is a picture of a man named Frank Hall. In 2012, at a school in Ohio, early one morning, one of the worst things that you could possibly imagine happened. They started the school day off with gunshots in the air. The principal, telling it through his lens, said he looked out and he saw a 16-year-old with an automatic weapon spraying bullets in the air. So he did what he dreaded he would ever have to do, and he went into his office and he got on the intercom and he said, lockdown, teachers go to lockdown. So the procedure is, you go into your room and you lock down, you protect the students. Except for this guy, Coach Hall. When he heard the gunshots and he looked across the cafeteria and he saw the gunman, his initial reaction was to run towards him rather than to run away from him. So as bullets are spraying in the air, Coach Hall is chasing this kid and he's yelling, stop, stop. And then that kid turned and ran out the door and into the woods. The police found him a little bit later and arrested him. And what they discovered was that he had a lot of ammo left. Tragically, three students died that day, and a few others were injured. But that guy had planned on doing a lot more damage. And noticing this, they said, why did you stop? If you planned on doing so much more, why did you stop? And he simply said, because Coach Hall was chasing me. Coach Hall, this unarmed man, has nothing to actually stop it, decided to run towards the object of fear And in doing so, he saved countless lives that day. And in an interview later, they were talking to him and hailing him as a hero. And he said, all I am is an assistant football coach and a study hall teacher. And I think most people would agree you're much more than that. But we see in Jesus this courage where instead of running from the fear, instead of hiding from the fear, he steps right into the fear. The object of fear. He is able to distinguish between the object of fear and fear itself. And because of that, the disciples are told, come back and rejoin. We're going to watch the the second part of this video. And we see through the mindset of Peter what it's like when he's running away on Friday, cutting and running. And then on Sunday, when there's an empty tomb, when Jesus is resurrected, we see this kind of courage that Peter now has. So I asked the question that I started with, are you running from something or are you running towards something? 
This little video gives us a glimpse into maybe what the mindset of Peter was like. The difference between Friday on crucifixion day and Sunday, resurrection day. On Friday, he's running from. On Sunday, he's running towards. What makes the difference? The same Peter who was deathly afraid of the crowd and what took place while Jesus was on trial and crucified, this same Peter, just a few months later, stands before the same crowd and boldly proclaims the gospel message. What makes the difference? I think for Peter, it's because he saw a resurrected Lord. I think for Peter, it's because Jesus sent his Holy Spirit. If you're fed up with fear being the dominant story in your life, there's hope. We can face fear with courage just like Jesus did. We can face fear with courage because Jesus has defeated the root for most of our fears, and that is death. If fear is controlling you, if fear is preventing you, which it does for most of us from really making some changes in our life, if you're afraid of what others may think, or if you're afraid of maybe the pain that you may have to go through to make changes, don't let fear be the dominant story. Don't worry. Don't fear what other people may think, but be willing to step towards it just like Jesus did. For some of you, maybe just being here today, you had to overcome some fears because you haven't been to church in a while, and you had to step out of your comfort zone to be here, and, and we're really glad that you did. And we want you to know that we have our church leaders, our elders, our shepherds, who every Sunday make themselves available to you. They'll be around the room, and one of them will be up front with me. And we want you to know that this is an opportunity to face those fears, to be prayed for, to maybe just take a step towards the resurrected Lord. So we're going to offer an invitation right now. And if you need to respond, find one of our shepherds, or you can come up front with me. And why don't you do that while we stand and sing? How great the, the chasm, chasm that 